We're in the gospel, or excuse me, the book of Genesis this morning. We're in Genesis chapter 24. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9. You can open your Bible there. You can navigate on your phone or your uh, tablet device. You might want to turn your ringer off so I don't make fun of you. Studies in the life of Abraham, Genesis 24. Just about done with uh, Abraham. A couple more weeks, I think. Maybe one more week. But this morning we're in chapter 24, verses 1 through 9. The topic, after instructing his servant about where to find a proper wife for his son Isaac, Abraham has him swear an oath by placing his hand under his thigh, the title of our message, Thigh Master. (laughs) What else? All right, let's pray. I'm surprised you know what a thigh master is. You have one in your garage, I know it. Suzanne Summers, right? Wasn't she the thigh master? Yeah, that's right. It's all coming back to me now in a bad way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, the richness of it, the fullness of it, the joy of being able to read it and study it, know that the Holy Spirit is in our midst and in our hearts, if we're Christians, Lord, to reveal Christ through it. This morning, Lord, as we follow the course of your word, the theme that you've given us, I pray that you would expand it and grow it in our hearing, Lord, so that we hear those things, each of us individually, that you intend for us to hear, those whisperings, Lord, of your love for us, so that we'll be encouraged to go on and run the race with patience and endurance as we wait for the coming of Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, and those who agreed said, amen. It's been said that you should pray as if everything depended upon God, then act as if everything depended upon you. It's as good a practical summary of the Bible doctrine of God's providence as you're likely to find. Providence is defined by theologians as that continuous agency of God by which he makes all the events of the physical and moral universe fulfill the original design uh, with which he created it. A shorter summary of God's providence would be to simply say, God is in control. If God is in control, do I have free will? The free actions of human beings of course, are part of God's providence. In other words, we're not robots simply playing out a predetermined script. Within his providence, God tells us to act in ways that can most definitely affect the world around us. For example, God tells us to pray, and we're taught in Scripture that the effective, fervent prayer of a believer has an effect on the world and on people around us. So we would have to say something like God is in control and prayer changes things. Now, I may never fully understand the relationship between providence and free will, but I can enjoy and apply God's providence every day in my walk with Jesus. Abraham's a great example of how I can enjoy and apply God's providence. When he sent out his servant to secure a bride for Isaac, Abraham was positive that God was in control and that he would provide the bride. But simultaneously, he believed that both he and his servant must act prudently within God's providence. The same should be true of us in our daily walk with the Lord. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, 
you can be positive of trusting in God's providence. And number two, you should be prudent while trusting in God's providence. Let's take a look first of all about being positive. Tucked away in the middle of this text is a great statement about providence. Let's find it as we read the whole story through. I'll give you a clue. It's in verse 7. But let's begin in verse 1. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh. And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. You shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, to your descendants, I give this land, he will send his angel before you. You shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath. Only do not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. In the middle of his very prudent, practical, down-to-earth instruction to his servant, Abraham gave a very powerful statement of God's providence in verse 7. Without verse 7, this all sounds as if everything depended upon Abraham's counsel being followed to the letter, even to the point that if the proper young lady refused to accompany the servant back, then the search was to be abandoned. Yet at the very same time, simultaneously, Abraham could state with a positive certainty, God will send his angel before you. You shall take a wife for my son from there. Abraham knew that God had a definite plan and that God would see to it that his plan was accomplished. Part of that plan is stated in the first part of verse 7. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, to your descendants, I give this land. Now, that's a sort of a summary of what we've been calling and what Bible scholars call the Abrahamic covenant. It's a series of promises, a set of promises, rather, that God gave to Abraham about inheriting the physical land of Canaan, uh, about having descendants as numerous as the uh, sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. There's promises in there to the Gentile nations of the world, how they, too, will be blessed. And so Abraham knew God's overall plan and that it could not fail and that it would not fail. And we believe that even today, even despite uh, the history of the nation of Israel and their disobedience, God is still working out in his providence and by his power, his plan for the nation of Israel. Now they're back in the land again as prophesied. And we see all these events in prophecy swirling around the Middle East. And so uh, we understand what Abraham understood, that there was a definite plan. And obviously, the promises that God had made Abraham, they were all dependent upon his son Isaac having a child or children. There would be no descendants unless Isaac married and produced them. 
And so Abraham understood the importance of Isaac marrying and marrying correctly. He was positive that God was in control. It was the context within which he lived his life and walked with the Lord. He knew that God would see his plan through to the end. You and I can be absolutely positive regarding God's plan for our lives. And we don't always know the minute details of his plan for our lives. And we uh, sometimes won't know, you know exactly those things. That's what we're most concerned about. But in reality, the broad aspects of his plan are already known to all of us. And they give us courage and confidence and hope. We live in an age in which the gospel is to go out to the whole world to the effect that whosoever believes will be saved. It's kind of a, uh, a worldview that we have. What's going on in the world? Well, God is working out his purpose for the nations of the world and for the history of the world and his prophetic plan. And in the middle of that, we live in the church age where the gospel is going out to every creature and where people, men and women and children, are being saved while the long-suffering of God waits, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance and faith. And so that's the world in which we live. We have a, a, a philosophy, we would say, about the world that is true and accurate. Everyone else's philosophy about the world is just wrong. Their understanding of what's going on is not true. And so we have a confidence in that. We also know that the Lord is coming to resurrect and rapture his church. And we're to be excited about that blessed hope. If we die before he comes, the Bible says we're going to be absent from our bodies and present with him in heaven. We talked about the courage and the strength that that gives us in our last study when we saw the death of Sarah and how that if you're a Christian, you alone have hope in eternal life. You alone know exactly what's going to happen to you at the moment of death. We also know that Jesus is in heaven right now, preparing for each of us a house that he calls a mansion, and that when we see him, it's his intent to reward us for our faithful service. And so I may not know if my rent money is going to come in tomorrow, and that's a big concern. I may not know certain other things, where my job, if I'm going to be able to get the job I applied for or some of those things. But there's a sense in which, in a very broad sense, I'm secure in the Lord's future for me. I know some big things that other people don't, and they give me courage and hope. Providence, in certain ways, is central to the conduct of the Christian life. One author said, it means that we are able to live in the assurance that God is present and active in our lives. We are in his care and can therefore face the future confidently, knowing that things are never happening merely by chance. Now, it doesn't mean I can explain what's happening or I can put all the pieces together, but I know that God is in control. At the same time, and this is the bulk of what we want to talk about this morning, you should be prudent while trusting in God's providence. Prudent means being wise in your everyday practical affairs. Providence should never lead me to a let go and let God approach to living. On the contrary, I should be all the more careful to walk properly now that I know that God has a wonderful plan for my life, that he has good works which he has before ordained that I should discover. In the context of God's providence, Abraham acted as if everything depended upon him. 
So verse one says, he was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. It's clear that God had a plan for Abraham. While it reads as a very dramatic plan, as we've seen in our studies, it's pretty much the same plan God has for everyone. He calls upon Abraham to turn to him from idols and to walk on this earth as a stranger, as a citizen of another realm, looking for a heavenly home. And that really is a summary of any Christian life. If you're a believer, God has called you to him from idolatry to walk with him until he takes you home to heaven. Now, granted, some of the events of Abraham's life are more exciting than living in Riverdale. <laughs> or even Hanford, for that matter, as exciting as it can be for waiting for trains uh, to pass so that you can get where you're going. But, and so, you know, there's a, there's a truth to the fact that my life may never be quite as exciting on paper as Abraham's life. But that's a secondary thing. I don't know that I want my life to be as exciting as Abraham. You ever think about that? Do you, ever, do you really pine away wishing that you could have as exciting a life of Abraham? I don't know. It's like angels. Do you really want to see an angel? I don't. <laughs> you might have a real desire to see an angel, but a lot of times when people see and saw angels in the scripture, it was rough. Zechariah saw an angel. The angel said that his wife, Elizabeth, was going to have a child. And he said, how do I know that? And he goes, well, I'll show you how you know it. You're going to be mute until the child's born. And then he couldn't talk. I don't want to see an angel. If an angel comes to me, I'm going to send him to your house. But anyway, so, yeah, my life. So, but the, that's the thing. You read, you say, I don't want anybody to ever go away from the Bible. Oh, well, that was Abraham. God really loved Abraham. If he really loved me, I wouldn't be in Hanford. You know, that kind of a thing. Uh, but that's not true. God loves you just as much as he loved Abraham. He had a different plan for Abraham, a unique plan for Abraham. He has a unique plan for you as well. Verse two, so Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh. Now, most commentators say this was Eliezer who Abraham once thought could be his heir back before Isaac was born uh, and Abraham was trying to work out the things of God for himself. He suggested Eliezer be his heir. <laughs> Not a lot is written about Eliezer, but what is written is striking. We know that he was a servant that he was thought of more like a son who could be trusted to carry out the will of his master. Wouldn't that be a great thing to be said of you and I towards the end of our life, or at any time in our life, but certainly towards the end, that we were the servant thought of more like a son who was faithful to carry out the will of our master in the stewardship of the things that he had given us as Christians. And so that's all I really want to be. So in that sense, we are all Eliezer's. Now, this putting the hand under the thigh, if you try to research this, there are a lot of different suggestions as to why this custom developed. The truth is, no one knows for sure why they did it this way, but this is the way they swore oaths in those days. It's their version of raising your right hand while putting your other hand on a Bible or putting your hand across your heart. It's just a physical gesture that accompanies the swearing of an oath. Verse 3, 
He says, I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. Now, generally speaking, we don't need to go around swearing oaths or making promises. We should simply act from integrity with honesty. At the same time, there's really nothing wrong with commemorating especially important events with an oath or a promise or a vow. I know, for example, a lot of parents encourage their kids to take purity vows. Marriage vows are another important oath. Uh, And so we're not against promises and oaths and vows and swearing and things like that. I think sometimes if you do it too much, anything you do too much, it kind of cheapens it. You know, if you're, if you're always, you know, coming up with a, I've noticed, um, and um, maybe I should think about this before I say it, but I'm not going to, but uh, I've noticed that a lot of times in the Christian uh, bookstore realm, uh, you know, something will become popular and then they will develop some kind of a Bible study system around it at the end of which you swear an oath or you sign a decree or you do something like that. And quite honestly, though, I think some of that, like, you know, it it could be meaningful. I'm not saying it's never meaningful, but I think the more you do that, uh, you know, it just becomes cheap. It just becomes commonplace. So, you know, if you want to say, you want to have marriage vows, I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty important. I mean, that's, you know, one man, one woman for life kind of a thing. I mean, that's important. If you want your kids to uh, make a, a vow of purity as they're growing up in the Lord, that's, that's great. Just don't overdo it. And most of the time, we just need to act from integrity with honesty. Abraham was prudent. He didn't just let go and let God when it came to raising his son. God said, hey, you're going you know, to have the land and your descendants and all this is going to happen. And Abraham didn't say, hey, great, far out, marry whoever you want. Sooner or later, God will bring somebody to you. Let's just hang out here and see what happens. Uh, the Canaanite girls, yeah, maybe they'll get saved if you date them for a while. That kind of a thing. No, Abraham understood that God's promise and his providence was to be taken so seriously that he would act prudently about it and he was going to raise his son to marry uh, a believer. And he was going to uh, restrict his path in that way. It mattered who married Isaac. The non-believing daughters of the Canaanites, hey, they're off limits. Do yourself a favor if you have young children Tell them from a very young age that they are not to marry non-believers and that God really does have a spouse in mind for them and, that you, and pray with them when they're little for their future spouse and watch God bring that to fruition. But don't just sit back and say, oh, well, you know, you're a Christian, maybe you'll find a Christian. Oh, he's not a Christian, she's not a Christian. Oh, maybe they'll get saved. Wow. No, don't do that. It's not prudent. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here. It matters how you raise your kids. You should raise them to know the Lord. Have you figured out? It, well, let me put it this way. It doesn't take long to figure out that your little child is a hell-doomed sinner. I'm serious. Especially around, you know, two years old. You call it the terrible twos, but it's just the sinful twos. Don't throw that. Don't drop it either. Don't even set it down. And that's the kind of the progression. It's like, okay, I mean, I see these little kids. It's like, okay, my mom and dad told me not to throw it, so I'm just going to casually drop it and look at them. 
And then you as a parent think, well, technically he didn't throw it. It was just a drop. So then you figure out, yeah, he meant to drop it in defiance. So then it becomes, I'll just set it down then and look at you. And, and just they're so defiant. These, and you love them. They're so cutely defiant. But I'll tell you what, when they're 15 and they're doing that, it's not so cute anymore. And so you need to get a handle on that when they're young. Verse four, but you shall go to my country and to my family and take a wife for my son, Isaac. Isaac would end up marrying the daughter of one of his cousins. Yuck. But actually, cousin marriage, we're familiar with that. You know that Eleanor Roosevelt, the wife of Franklin Roosevelt, was his fifth cousin. So I don't, I don't recommend it, uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, not, it's just one of those things people criticize. Oh, you know, he had to marry his cousin. Well, people did that throughout history. They still do it today. Now, the point we are stressing is that within, because of God's providence, we are to act prudently. We shouldn't ignore God's word and go about thinking, it'll all work out in the end. Our free actions will matter within the providence of God. Verse five, and the servant said to him, perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? Eliezer understood the priority of securing the proper wife and now he became concerned about where they ought to live. Should Isaac move back to Abraham's boyhood home? Abraham said to him, beware that you do not take my son back there. This is pretty strong language. But it's understandable since God's promises to Abraham were tied so closely to the land he had brought him into. We are not tied to a geography, but we can go back to the world if we're not careful. In our studies in the life of Abraham, we've seen him stumble by going back down to Egypt when he should have stayed the course in Bethel. We've seen Abraham's nephew, Lot, look longingly towards Sodom only to end up living a defeated spiritual life as one of its leaders. And so, you know, as you grow in the Lord, as you're walking with the Lord, uh, we need to resist the temptation to move back into the world in our way of thinking and in our way of living. It seems one of the perils, one of the pitfalls of growing in the Lord is a sort of spiritual pride that comes in that says, yeah, I can handle that. When I first got saved, I couldn't handle that. I got rid of all of that from my life, whatever it is. You know, I burned it, I threw it away, I turned my back on it, I wouldn't have anything to do with it. But, you know, I've been walking with the Lord for some time, now I'm pretty mature, I've read through the Bible several times. I, I go to church, I do all these things. I think I can handle that. I can bring that back into my life a little bit. And, and maybe you can. I'm not saying you can't. But we want to be careful, we want to be prudent about that because it's just as likely that we're doing what Lot did and we're looking longingly back at something that will uh, end up uh, putting us in a place of spiritual defeat. And so, yeah, God's providence for us, he has a plan for us, but we're to act prudently within it. God's providence should amplify my carefulness rather than be taken casually. God's providence ought to encourage greater spiritual discipline rather than my slacking off. Verse seven, the Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family and who spoke to me and swore to me saying to your descendants, I give this land, he will send his angel before you and you shall take a wife for my son from there. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, you'll be released from this oath 
only don't take my son back there. And so we see here, Abraham positive God would provide Isaac a wife, but simultaneously saying she would have free will to choose for herself. That's really mind-boggling in a philosophical sense if you try and figure that out. Now, the guys that try and figure that out, the theologians, uh, they all agree on God's providence, but they disagree as to how it works itself out in our lives. Fairly recent book was published giving four major views on God's providence with respect to man's free will. There's a lot more than four views. Without going into too much detail, these are the four views. Some of them I understand, quite honestly, some I don't really understand. But the first one is that God causes all things, period. This view effectively cancels out free will. All actions are determined. Number two, God directs all things. Uh, William Lane Craig, who's a guy that we appreciate, he holds this view. He says this view accounts for free will by uh, saying that not only does God know everything that will happen in the universe at all times, he also knows what might happen given a set of certain circumstances. Thus, God controls all events while allowing spiritual beings complete free will. A third view, God controls by liberating. The proponents of this view argue that God acts before, in, through, and beyond our actions, even our evil actions, to accomplish his will. Whatever my act truly and lastingly accomplishes then becomes the will of God because it is an act of God. I went to college and I don't understand that. Uh, number four, uh, it's like my dad said, you went to college to get stupid. Did, you ever, did your dad ever tell you that? That's, yeah, it's true. God limits his control. This is a terrible interpretation, but there are Christians who hold this. In this interpretation, God does not necessarily know or control all moral actions of his created spiritual beings. Accordingly, although God knows all that might happen in the universe, he does not know with certainty what will happen within each person's sphere of moral choices. I don't find any confidence there. And so if I had to choose one of those, it's going to be door number two, behind which God directs all events while allowing us complete free will. Can I explain that? Can I fully comprehend that? No. And I don't think anyone really ever will this side of eternity. The point I'm making today is that regardless your intellectual apprehension of the doctrine of God's providence, on a daily, practical basis, you are to proceed as if your choices and actions actually matter because they do. You are to pray, for instance, believing that prayer not only changes you, but can actually affect the course of human events. There are definite examples in Scripture where prayer changed the course of events within God's larger providence. And so verse 9 closes it out. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Eliezer understood his charge and agreed to it by swearing an oath in the custom of the times. He would go on to faithfully carry out his assignment by securing Rebekah for Isaac in one of the truly great romantic uh, love stories in the scripture. When asked by a captain how he could remain so calm with a storm of shells and bullets raining about his head, General Thomas Stonewall Jackson reportedly said, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. 
God has fixed the time of my death. We would agree, but also encourage him to duck when being fired upon. (laughs) Right? I mean, that's what we all believe. (laughs) Do you for a second not believe that God knows the moment of your death? You don't. You know that God has that clearly in mind. Do you play on the freeway? No, because that's probably not what God has in mind. And so we, on a, we do this already. We act prudently and we believe in God's providence. What I'm getting at this morning is to amplify both of them, to really be able to stand and say, God is in control. Oh, yeah? So why did this happen and why is that happening? I don't know. How should I know? This tragic event, this sad event, this awful thing, this trial, this tragedy, why is it happening if God is in control? I don't know. Who would know something like that? Did Joseph know what was going on when his brothers tried to kill him by throwing him in a pit and then sold him into slavery to a traveling band of Ishmaelites? Did he know what was going on when he was in Potiphar's house falsely accused? When he was thrown into the Egyptian prison? When he was raised to be second in command to Pharaoh? And he did have any idea during any of that time what was going on? No. But later, he had a revelation that God meant it for good. His brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We may not have that kind of revelation this side of eternity. We always think we're going to. It's almost important to us to know exactly why God allowed something. Why did this person die right now in this situation? I want to know. And you know, God is not under any obligation to tell us. And he may not. He may not in this life. Just He told Joseph for his glory and for our good so that we know there always is a purpose and his providence is being worked out. But there's no guarantee I'm going to have answers to even serious questions about what God has allowed in my life. Nevertheless, I stand on the truth that God is in control, that he's working his purposes out according to his eternal plan just as he has decided to. And at the exact same time, I am fired up to do all the things a Christian ought to be doing. Rather than think, well, since God has it all under control, I can just kind of hang. I can, I can let it all, you know, just kind of cruise and let God just bring this stuff to my life. No, quite the opposite. I need to really get into this. God has a plan for my life. I don't know what it is, but I want to discover it. He says he has good works for me to discover. I got to be in a place spiritually and physically and emotionally where I can discover those things and have the best life that God intends for me. And so rather than worry about exactly how free will and providence work out, so much better to believe both of them simultaneously, to know that God is in control and precisely because he is, I can be disciplined and diligent in everything that I do to his glory, for his honor. Amen?